Suicide Zombies and Forgiveness, the podcast that deals with self-healing and the survivor's journey for those who are suicide adjacent. Please keep breathing, choose life, and develop a gratitude attitude that'll help you get through today. It's Elaine. Thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. As you know, it's Suicide Zombies and Forgiveness. And I'm really excited today because I have a really... I think uh, not just interesting, honest guest. His name is Robin Ferry, a police officer with the Ottawa Police Force. Robin has not just a very interesting story. I find him very real, and that's why I invited him here. Because we all know that for way too long, people don't talk about mental health. People don't talk about suicide and anxiety. All the difficulties that we have, and let's face it, folks, we've done more than a year now with this pandemic. We need all the help we can get. One of the things that frightens me the most and another reason why I brought Robin on today is because men, 45 to 64, are the largest cohort that are in jeopardy that are the ones that we're losing to suicide the most. I know a lot of people think that it's young people and children, and any suicide, even one, is too many. That's truly how I feel. I wanted to get it from a male perspective, and I'm just going to stop talking and let Robin do some talking now. Thank you so much for being with me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me and asking me on here. Um, yeah, I was obviously listening to <laughs> everything you said there. I think it, it it is so important, you know, getting that getting that word out there and talking about suicide and um, you know, especially in in men, not well, not just men, but everybody in every age. But I think yeah. a, a lot of men are, have that that machoism, the bravado, that whole thing that they're supposed to be the strength of the families, the strength of their jobs, just that they've been, you know, boys have always been raised to be like tough and, and whatever. And I think we have to kind of get away from that. I think we have to shift and allow men to be a bit, a bit softer, you know, when, when it's, when it's needed and, and allow them to show their emotions. And I was raised differently like I know I talked about raised to be brave and like the bravado and all that but my dad was actually very sensitive man and he uh he didn't hide his emotions so I was lucky enough to have a role model like that growing up where I was okay to show my emotions and he uh yeah he he was he was that type of guy I mean he still wanted to instill the toughness in us Mm. and and have that and be the man like he, he wanted to take care of my mom and always wanted to be that side so I learned that role as well I think it's really interesting that you say that because that answers a question what I want to tell the audience is um, I came to know about Robin because a, a dear friend uh, Sabrina sent me a link to a video and you will be seeing Sabrina on the show as well as a guy named Dylan for Today, uh, Robin's story really struck me because he he talked about wanting to be a police officer his whole life. And now you're talking about your dad being sensitive, which I think is absolutely incredible. And sadly, it was so rare 
I would say. You know, we're, we're, I would say 30-year-olds and under are seeing a much different iteration of men because people are, are allowed to be full people. We're, men are allowed to have emotions now. And it's really funny, Robin, because I grew up, the saddest thing that ever happened in my life, I think I was 12, we were home in Scotland. For whatever happened, I don't know the whole story or anything, but my father was upset enough that he shed a tear. It absolutely ruined any vision I had of my father because I was brought up in a time when men were stoic. Not only did they not show emotion, they didn't have any. Like, what was there to show? No, they were there to to protect and, and what have you. Hearing about someone's father who actually had the sensitivity, and don't get me wrong, my father is a great guy. In his later years, he's certainly um, softer now because things have changed. Uh, my mother's no longer around either, so he's he's had to deal with just his two daughters, which uh, make things a little bit different. I think... In watching your video, what came through was honesty and your true conviction in knowing that you're now on this right path. I would like you to take us through a, what to me was a horrific first day on the job. Why don't you let us know what uh, it was like for you when you became a police officer? Yeah, the uh, so that like you said earlier, that it's, it was my dream to become a police officer. Growing up, I had always played cops and robbers, but I always wanted to be the cop. I always wanted to be the person arresting the other person or pulling the other <laughs> bicycle over. And you know, I grew up in Bayshore, and I uh, I used to ride my bike around, and I was the the uh, the police officer of of my friends and everything. So it was always in my I don't want to say in my blood, but it was always my dream and my passion mm -hmm. to be a police officer and I always wanted and it was always because I wanted to help others you know I was um anyway so fast forward to 2008 I was hired by the Ottawa Police Service and I was I mean I was just beyond myself excited to to be starting this career this dream that I have had my whole life and you know I wasn't the best student growing up in high school and I actually had teachers and the guidance counselor tell me that I would never amount to anything and that I'd never become a police officer. Now, I, I, I would like to say they were using reverse psychology or trying to, at, <laughs> at least back then. It didn't stop me from pursuing my, my dream. Uh, so in 2008, I got hired and we go off to police college in Aylmer, Ontario, just outside of London. And we were there for three months training. And then when we get back to Ottawa to our respective services, uh, mine being Ottawa, of course, we go out to on the road with our coach officers do uh, 500 hours I believe it was back then wow. I think it might still be now but of coaching time with our coach wow. officers so this is just to learn the ropes basically to to watch our coach officer for the first little bit to understand how it works what what the, the rules are how to conduct yeah. yourself and on my first day on the road with my coach officer was in May 2009 it was a night shift I was in Vanier so we were, our patrol area was Vanier, and we got a call just after after midnight to the Metro, which is no longer there. And there was a, all dispatch told us what the, was that there was a male wanting police and needing his assistance. We weren't sure what was gonna happen. My coach was saying, you know, sometimes 
we get called out to things and there could be a, a fight, there could be anything. So just be prepared, you know, maybe get your, we have hatch gloves that we, when we deal with people. So part of the call was that he was, um, 10 code for 10 is 10, 12 for intoxicated. So we thought, okay, maybe there's something going on. We got ready. We got there. And he, the first thing he said was, I can't, I, obviously I can't give you too much because it's still before the courts, but oh, basically yeah. that he had murdered somebody. Wow. He told us where he lived. We were given the key and his permission to go in. So when we got there, there was the, the body. And that was my, that was my first experience with policing. And I thought to myself, wow. I'm like, Oh my, Oh my God. But this is, it just completely flipped what I thought about the world right in that split second. And it was so surreal that I thought, okay, where's the cameras? I'm on TV. This is, you know, it was like, I, I watched the first 48. That's all I ever saw of scenes. Yeah. And then that, that day was just, it completely took my mind and said, okay, I cannot believe that there's human beings doing this to other human beings. Yeah. And it was just from that day on, I just, it was, it would really change me from the, that moment on it changed my perspective on on the reality of what or my sense of reality absolutely i mean talk about trial by fire when you talk about wanting to be a police officer from the time you were a kid there's a a joy there's a a richness in your voice and that all changed the minute you told what happened i can even feel from just what you're saying that you no longer perhaps saw this position, um, what you were doing, as simply a helpful service. There was, well, I guess, gore. There was, you know, this, this had become something so much more or so much darker, I suppose, than, than what you really expected. Yeah, it was, it was definitely an eye-opener. Um, I mean, all, all my dealings with police officers growing up were... Uh, I remember Constable Adams, he was the school resource officer at my school in Bayshore, and he was the nicest, nicest police officer ever. I met uh, Robin Easy, who was one of the officers shot at Bayshore Mall and who was confined to a wheelchair ever, or ever since that shooting, who was the nicest guy and full of life and is still nice. And yeah. uh, I mean, I haven't seen him <laughs> since or since then every dealing that i had with a police officer was was good and there was they were these i was taught to respect them i was taught to look up yeah. to any police officer and they were the authority and they were there to help you and then when i became a police officer you know that was my that's what i wanted to be i wanted to be that person that yeah. people turned to that people wanted around and i quickly realized that it is not that way we're not I mean, we're not liked by a lot. And then the biggest, I think the biggest thing for me was realizing that I cannot help everybody. And I definitely cannot help the people that do not want help. Yeah. And that was the hardest. I think that was one of the hardest things for me because I'm not, I have that personality that I just want to be and I want to help. I want to be there and I want to help people and I want to quote unquote fix things, fix yeah. problems. And that transitioned into my, or I believe it was already in my real, my everyday life and transitioned into my, my serving. And I just realized I couldn't, it was hard. That was a hard pill to swallow. You know, I, it I'll was bet like, it was. And, and in all probability, what, what I got from what I've already seen was you didn't have an outlet 
to be able to put it out there, discuss it, and be able to dispense with it. You just mm-hmm. kind of took it in. Yeah. So that's, and that's the other thing. That's what I, going back to what you said about your father, that, you know, he was supposed to be this, or he was this stoic man and he was, he didn't, he wasn't supposed to have those emotions. And what's he doing, to, showing these emotions? That is still true to this day in policing and not just for men, for the women police officers yeah. as well, that we are supposed to suppress our feelings. And there's no, like you said, there's no outlet there. Like you don't, yeah. if you go to a call, you do a, de- a small debrief, but no one talks to you. Okay, how are you feeling? Yeah. How did you? It was my first day. All I got, wow. and this, you know, and, and it's jokes. This is the dark humor. I went down in the elevator to bring one of the sergeants up. He was my sergeant at the time, or one of my sergeants at the time, and we were coming up in the elevator. And he just looked at me. He's like, huh, first day. Aren't you bad luck? And I'm like, oh my god. And I just laughed. Yeah, because it was dark. It's dark humor, and that's what we did. Yeah. That's what we do as police officers, as first responders, not just police officers, as military, and a lot of people do it, is they yeah. hide and mask their feelings and emotions behind humor. And that's that was it. That was the whole thing. Like, I need, okay, this is the way it's going to be. This is my first day. I have to be tough. I can't let that emotion. But what should be happening, and this is my belief, it should yeah. be that, okay, you know, Robin, this was your first day on the job. Crazy, crazy call. Let's sit down and talk about it. Is there anything you want to discuss? Is there any issues, concerns? What are you feeling? It needs to be like that. Yes. And it's not like that. So that's yeah. where I would love to be able to change it and where I'm changing myself. And yeah. coach, like, so I'm doing the coaching course, which we'll take to talk about afterwards. But I'm coaching myself in becoming more emotionally intelligent and being able to kind of talk myself through things. But it needs to be done outside of the individual. Well, not only that, something you said that the sergeant said, and and again, gallows humor, dark humor, call it what you will. It's always been my go-to. So I totally understand that, you know, being bent and humorous can sometimes be the only option, the only outlet you have. That comment saying that, oh, aren't you bad luck? Without realizing it, that's something that you took in. And probably without realizing (laughs) just how much that grows over time. Let's, we we definitely have to come back to your coaching because I think that's super important. And I, I think that's where we need to go with everything to do with men and women, starting with men because for so long we didn't give men that option. All first responders, especially in this pandemic, everybody needs someone to talk to. And I think having a coach for a set number of police officers, one for every whatever it is, 10 or 20 or however they work, I think needs to become the go-to because none of us are supposed to handle this stuff. You know, none of us are supposed to get comfortable with what you went through. Let's go back into your life as a policeman and, and where things started to kind of come off the rails for you. For me, it's, it wasn't one particular incident. It was an accumulative factor. It was a, a whole bunch of it incidents and scenes that kind of 
got me to where I was not doing well, um, which I found out through my psychologist and through going to therapy. And it was, I can't pinpoint exactly when it started going, but I just remember that there were, I was going into work and all of a sudden I was getting these really dark thoughts, right? weird thoughts, um, scary, terrifying thoughts. And, and it was through, I believe it came on quick kind of after Eric Chapnick, Constable Chapnick was murdered at, uh, the civic hospital by, uh, Gregson, right. um, who was an ex RCMP officer himself. Yes. Um, so when, when Chapnick was murdered, I don't know if it was that I watched the video of him running into the, oh. the, um, hospital yeah. holding his neck. And I, I don't want to go into that because just I don't want to, if anybody, if his family is listening or those are hard moments. Uh, sorry. Absolutely. No, take it. No, you take all the time you need. Seeing, seeing that. And then, you know, we're as we are, suppose, we, we give our lives, we put our lives on the line, not every yeah. day, not every shift, but there is a possibility that we don't go home to our families, yeah. our kids. And you know when that when I hear about officers making that ultimate sacrifice, it like it it does it hits home and I don't want to I don't want to get off topic there but it kind of and that's where it it kind of hurts a lot when people are so against police and anti police and I know there's bad people there's bad people I'm not even going to say police officers because there's bad people out there there's not yeah. there's bad apples in every bunch right so. Yeah. But there are men and women that put their lives on the line and then sometimes make the ultimate sacrifice. But then there's the other side of it, like myself and uh, plenty of other officers that get injured another way. And that takes its toll as well. So for me, it was a lot, a lot of uh, death. I was going to a lot of dead bodies, suicides, murders, just Mm -hmm. a, a lot of death. And it was like a lot in, I remember one year they actually dubbed me or some of my platoon mates j- jokingly called me uh, Constable Death because oh, I was just God. like I was going to every dead body. And some some shifts it was a, a two, three in a row. You know, my whole shift was spent, I remember one shift I was spent going from body to body oh, on a 10, God, a 10 hour and 45 minute shift. So it was just like getting to me and to the point where I was like, okay, when's my time? When am I going to die? Yeah, I'm gonna like. When is it my time? Am I? Is there something gonna happen? And then I started getting these dark thoughts, like I said, where I was like, okay, Gregson snapped and killed another police officer, and from what I heard, what hurt his family and a child, and like, could this? Could I just snap? And all of a sudden, my brain just kept going, and it was like this snowball effect, and I to the point where I couldn't control it. Yeah, and these thoughts were coming quicker and quicker. And it got to a point where I was having thoughts of pulling my gun out and shooting people, other officers. And I was like, what the heck is this? Like, this isn't me. And I was like terrified of my gun. I would brush against it and it would give me chills. I put it on and it would give me chills. I would like handle, I would handle it so carefully when I was putting, like when I was loading it to get ready for my shift, it was, it terrified me because I thought, I truly thought, at any moment, I'm just going oh to start shooting. Oh. And I was like, I, I don't want to do that. And I kept, I remember always concentrating, where's my finger? Where's my finger? Where's my finger? 
because I didn't want it to just, I thought in my head, yeah. this is my brain thinking that all of a sudden it's just going to go snap and it's going to, my finger's going to go to the trigger. That's what my belief was. Wow. So it got to a really bad when my whole life outside of policing was that. Uh, and then things didn't start or didn't, didn't seem real. Yeah. And my kids didn't feel like they were my kids. And then I was terrified to put my daughter, like my daughter one, one night wanted me to put her or lay in bed with her. And I didn't want to, I told my wife at the time, I said, I can't, I don't, I can't, I can't because I thought I'm going to hurt her. There's, I'm going to do something if I'm laying oh. there beside her and she falls asleep, I'm just going to hurt her and I'm not going to want to, but it's, I'm not going to be able to stop myself. Wow. And I remember she was like, my daughter was kind of like upset, like daddy, I want you to lay with me. Yeah. And she was, she was, she must've been seven, eight, maybe no seven. Anyways, <laughs> and I remember like cr crawling into bed and I'm like barely like touching her. And I, I remember just l laying there and I'm like, I don't like, please don't let me do anything. Please don't let me do anything. <laughs> and it just like, it got to a point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't be, I can't live my life like this. I mean, yeah. there's no sign for it stopping. Yeah. So it got, I started contemplating suicide as the only option that I could see to stop those feelings, stop that yeah. fear of doing something. So that fear turned to, I have to protect others yeah. by ending my life. Oh my God. And I used to go into the, I used to go into the station after a shift and I'd go in the, and I take my gun out and it was, this was at the point where I was at my darkest and at the, where I was like, probably on the fence of, of ending, ending it. And I would want to take my gun and just put it against my head just to feel what the metal felt like. And I remember telling my psychologist this when I finally got to see the psychologist and he said, you don't realize how close you yeah. actually were because yeah. the next step would have been for you to just see how far you could pull the trigger. And before that, and then, and that made me realize that these people a lot, people that commit suicide are probably just screaming for help yeah. and it's a probably like they just want to see how far they can go because maybe that'll stop they'll just stop and they'll be like no I can't and it was like but I so to start to go back before I went to see my psychologist I um I spoke with another officer because she had seen some signs in me uh -huh. and actually confronted me um and she asked me and she said, so I told her some of my thoughts and my story. Um, and it was just took that one person to kind of say, Hey, yes. what's going on? Yes. You know, and she's, she's, she's off now. Um, because she went and spoke to the same doctor actually. So she gave me his, his information said, you need to go and talk to yeah. him. Like you need to, you're having the same thoughts I was having. And you know, so I owe her, a lot of credit for yeah. saving my life. Um, and then another, so one of the last call, my actually my last call on the road was uh, a suicide oh, of God. a 28 year old female. <clears throat> and uh, she, her name's Amanda. I won't give her the last name because I don't want, again, if yeah. the family hears and, you know, um, so she, um, she, I was the first on scene. I was an early car and 
early cars go out while the rest of the night shift come in. Yeah. So we have at least one car out in the area. So I was early car for, uh, at this point, Stittsville and Canada area. Mm-hmm. And I remember logging on to my computer in my car and thinking, okay, I, I just knew, I don't know what it was, but you know, I, I just knew that there was going to be, as soon as I hit enter and log on, I'm going to get that call. I'm going to a dead body. I just, I don't know what it was. I just knew it. I don't, yeah. <laughs> anyways, we all have intuitions, right? And, yep. and I, I remember I hit it and then there's the noise from the, the uh, laptop. It's like, it's like this little like noise that the laptop makes that says you're getting a call and then yep. it blinks. And then dispatch came over the air and said uh, that I was going to a VSA, which is vital signs absent for a 20 or 28 year old female. And I was like, I don't want to swear on your podcast, but you know, yeah. I was like, Ugh. go right ahead. And I, I remember driving and I was, yeah, but I, yeah, I was just, I just, I just sank in my, my chair, but I put the car into drive and I drove, you know, and like, I'm like, I, I've, this is what I'm trained to do. I've got to now turn it off, yeah. turn off what I'm feeling all those suicidal thoughts, all those things that I was having. And I had to get there and I drove and I remember getting there. Uh, paramedics were there and fire or fire there yet. Yeah, I think they were. Um, and I went up and there she was on her bedroom floor and just this beautiful girl. Um, at the time we didn't realize it was uh, a suicide. Um, and I remember the dad, because the dad had gone in over the, throughout the night because he heard a noise. Um, and the dad and the mom were there. Oh, God. I had to sit down with them on the couch to ask them all these stupid questions that I had to yeah. ask in a moment like that. You know, and uh, and then I remember the dad just yelling her name. Oh, yeah. And screaming her name and crying. And then, you know, he ran up at one point and I had to go after him. And he, like, yeah. laid down with her and, like, Jesus, like, I can't like, and that, so through my therapy, I didn't realize at that point that she kind of also played a role in saving my life because I looked and I was like, how can I put my family through that? Yes. Like the parents are devastated and she was so loved and she didn't even know. And that was like the moment where I was like, what, like people that are doing this, like there's people out there that love them and care for them and will do anything for them. And that's so sad that these people think this is the only option. And, you know, and it, and the, the, the wake of hurt and devastation that never really goes away for the people that are left behind. It was like, it just, it was like, I can't, like, I couldn't, I couldn't do that to my, my kids. And I don't ever say that people that do that are bad people. Nope. I, I would never say nope. that. And Amanda, for her own reasons, needed to do that for herself. And she actually stuck with me up yes. until probably last year. She was like this, always there. But when I was through my therapy and through hard times, I, for, she was like this presence for me. Yeah. And even when I started, like I did EMDR, uh, EMDR, I think it's EMDR, electromagnetic, uh, I can't remember what the acronym actually means, but so I went through that with, with that scene and 
it was like I was able to let her go. Yes. And it was almost like I was holding her here on this side. If you believe, if anybody believes in an afterlife or, or heaven or whatever, whatever you believe in, I believe there is another side to to when we go. And that was like, I was holding her here, but I still feel when I need her she's that she's there. So she's like been this presence. And I have a, like, there was something I was going talking about or doing the other day. Oh, I think it actually... It was the it was the uh, documentary that we were yes. doing with Dylan and Sabrina, and I remember telling Dylan afterwards that I'm like, as I told that story, I felt like I felt her, yeah. like she was there because I hadn't spoken about I haven't told that story for quite a while until that day that we did the uh, documentary, and I remember I'm like it's like she's like right here, yeah. and it was just like you know and I, but she's able to like now it's not like she's there and stuck like. She, she can come and go. I really, truly feel like I, she is a part of my recovery, my journey, and me as an individual. Individual now, it's like I have that connection with her. Yes, that's where I look at her life and her taking her own life as saving and doing. And she did. She did. She's still doing good. Like she's still helping, even though she's not here physically. Absolutely. She's she's the gift you got because you have work to do mm. here. Yeah. to deal with this for other people and telling your story, telling our stories is what can help others. So gift from Andrea is what I received. You received a gift from Amanda. I, mm -hmm. I want to say thank you also to the police woman who saw the signs and helped you on the road to get help. Cause I think you have a lot to do and yeah, I totally I believe in a lot of things that not everybody does. I'm gobsmacked at the moment because the trajectory of your time with Amanda speaks to me so much. I, I don't think it was a matter of you sticking her there. It's that she knew she had to stay with you until you were out of danger. And that's why she was a constant presence. And thank God she did. I mean, it, it's wonderful for your family and it's wonderful for all the people that you're going to impact going forward. And to that end, you are now taking courses, coaching. Give us a, a quick synopsis of what's that, what that's going to look like and how you plan to apply it, perhaps within your job. Yeah, that's uh so I haven't quite down quite like nailed down my niche yeah. <laughs> per se, but um my coaching so what I want my coaching to be is uh, my website is gonna be P three wellness. Yep. So the P three, those three Ps is permanent peak performance. Okay. Training your mind to be at its emotional, mental and physical peak performance. Yes. So that's the underlying is the emotional, emotionally, mentally, and physically strong. Yeah. I do want to aim to towards men. Yes. I won't like, but first responders, also men that have kind of lost. So this is kind of my contradict what I was saying earlier is like that, you, you know, you, we, I want men to feel that they can be a bit softer. Some men come out of situations who have lost their, um, 
complete, I don't want to say manhood, but um, broken. Ima- feeling emasculated, yeah. build them up again yeah. and say it's okay to be down, but you're able to find your strength. Yeah. And the emotional intelligence, like I read uh, Daniel Gorman's book. emotional intelligence book, very clinical. It's very, it's a very tough it read. Um, yeah, it took me a little while to get through it, but I read it and I was like, this is amazing. And I'd already been practicing some of the emotional intelligence uh, practices. And it, but it's amazing. Like, it's amazing what you can actually do with your, your thoughts and your mind and, and kind of change your, pers- and it's a change of perspective, per- perception and perspective of situations. Right. Um, so my coaching, I want to kind of teach that. I want to guide people into their best, their best self, their best selves, their most, most authentic selves and that's my biggest thing because i think and it goes back to and i do want to tie in into policing and bring it to the police service my own police service and other police services if i can and kind of guide officers and first responders into whatever i mean ultimately as a coach you're you're there for the client and the client wants you their goals are what we're guiding them to so if if i have a client that whose goal is to be more emotionally intelligent then then i will help guide them that way and that's kind of what i want to do i want to allow i want to guide people in being their true selves and if being their true selves means that they're a bit softer and they want to show some emotion especially in men then i want them to know it's all right to to do that and that it's not weak to show your yes. emotions and to, to be sad or to be upset or to you know and 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 it goes back to how we're raised, but it also goes back to policing. It's such like it, that stigma of not showing your emotions and just swallowing yeah. everything and just joking or drinking, you know, and that's one thing I did. I turned to, to the bottle for a long yeah. time to try and drown out all those feelings and push them aside. And it's like the, a, a bucket or a backpack. Once you, if you shove too much in a bucket or too much water, eventually it flows out backpack. You shove too much into a backpack. You can't zip it up anymore and it's falling out well that happens to us as well absolutely and i think it's important that we unload that stuff yeah and it's it's funny in a way because you know as we're talking and you're talking about a bucket and a backpack and i'm thinking you know we shower every day to get rid of the debris and the detritus and whatever is on us we should be mentally showering to get rid of that debris. And as a coach, I think you're going to be able to arm your clients with the tools they can use to get rid of that debris, to work on their emotional intelligence, and to make sure that they go into every situation with the tools they need to work on mindset because I think it really comes back to you have to have a mindset and you have to understand where your limits are. You know, and it's interesting that you talk about the police service and, and, you know, being jovial and the drinking and the what have you, but back in the day, stuffing down those emotions and not showing them was the way for the police to be able to do what they did. Because if you, you know, if if we didn't have the tools 20 years ago even to understand 
that emotions need to flow and go. You you need to be able to digest what's happened so that you can then pass it off. And and not understanding that, yeah. the only thing they had was, well, you know, button up, stand up straight, fly right, what all those stupid adages <laughs> that we used to have. Yeah. So I think it's, for one, super commendable that you're giving back after going through such such a rough time. And, you know, I think the underlying piece that was really touching to me and important was throughout all of that struggle, you were worried about your family and other people first. Everything you said, you were concerned about those around you it wasn't an internal, oh, what about me? What about me? And I think that in itself makes you quite an extraordinary gentleman. Oh, no, thank no, thank you. And, yeah. and I, I cannot say thank you enough for not only coming on this podcast, but for being so completely real. Because it's really easy when, when you're just talking for people to kind of get, oh, you know, this is lovely, blah, blah, whatever. But you're the real you and you brought it all here. So I'm going to make a point of in our show notes for this podcast, we will have all the links to Robin so that you can connect with him uh, if there's anybody that, you know, wants to connect with Robin to perhaps have him talk to them about his uh, new course in coaching. I think that would be a great idea. I think you are an absolutely wonderful guest, and I think you have a great deal to share going forward that's going to be really, really helpful. And the fact is, if we want to change anything, be it a system, be it a government, a country, or what have you, we have to start with ourselves. So you've already done that, which I think is absolutely wonderful. What would you like to leave the audience with in terms of what's important to you, what you see going forward, what your hopes are? Yeah, I think, um, well, I appreciate everything you just said to me about me <laughs> i do appreciate that and the uh, you know if i wasn't being authentic and truthful then how can i preach and try and coach others to become authentic and truthful as well and to be them to be fully themselves so my i, I mean my my biggest aspiration and my biggest hope um about doing all this and giving back and uh, and my coaching and just speaking on you know on podcasts and anywhere i can i can is to to basically be that voice for those who haven't found their voice yet. Um, obviously my hope is that those people will find their voice maybe through me and be, you know, and I have had people reach out and, uh, and talk to me and say, you know, I, I was feeling this, thank you for yeah. speaking up. And, you know, and I've seen some of those people now turn around and start putting stuff out and talking about it openly. So that, and I always said, if I can help one person, then I've done my job. You know, and this is my way of serving, even though I'm not on the road anymore. Um, and I'm not sure if I ever will go back to the road. But this is my new way of serving. Um, 
and you know and and i'm also wanting to be the voice for those who no longer have their voice for people so they can see that okay you know i if they're having those thoughts they don't have to go to that length um and and i just want people to know like that cliche you're not alone and you aren't even though it might seem you're alone or you might feel alone during it because you this very lonely space at the time you're not and there's people that love you there's people that will listen to me to to you like myself um and it and it's and sometimes that's all you need so i just want people to to know that it's okay to to feel the way they're feeling men and women especially men and that it's okay to speak about it and talk about your feelings and your emotions and even show your emotions. It's, it's, I mean, just speaking about it and having a good cry sometimes is the best therapy that you can ever have. That That's such a good point. And it can be hard for all kinds of people to get to that point, understand that, yeah, a good cry is probably going to be really helpful. The other thing that's helpful that I know some people think is weird, but it's something I've always sort of done through my life. When when you get to a place that's really bad, whether it's in your head or it's pain or whatever it is, I always found that if you go to sleep, the minute you wake up, okay, there's a, a little period of, you know, 5 to 15 seconds when you first wake up each and every day, that you have a blank slate. There's nothing. You can be, do, say whatever you want. So give yourself that opportunity, okay? I say keep breathing, go sleep on it, and tomorrow I want you to choose life, even if for today. Absolutely. And then tomorrow we'll do it all over again. As people know, you can definitely reach out. We will have all the information for you on the website, in the show notes, with appropriate phone numbers and links for the hotlines in your area. I'm Elaine Lindsay. This has been my guest, Robin Ferry. I thank him ever so much for coming on the show. Again, I say choose life, keep breathing, and when you can, develop a gratitude attitude. It'll stand you in good stead. I look forward to seeing you next time.